Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the leaders here at the table. Um, does it feel chaotic here thus far? Is it, I mean, in a good way. I don't mean to put it in like this off-color comment in like, um, I've actually enjoyed it. It feels like home to me, to be honest with you. So, um, but here we are. Let's, let's take a moment, okay? Because this is the moment in the service where we try to provide some kind of sermonic material derived from, from scriptures, hopefully in search of something that will be equipping, empowering, and help us set up for a better day tomorrow than the one we had today. Take a deep breath with me, okay? Stillness. Stillness. There was times this past year with my therapist where I'd come in and I'd be 125 miles per hour and she would go, Matt. And I'd be like, did you hear anything I was saying? She'd go, Matt. Stillness. Stillness. I'm going to provide you with um, some words that, uh, that I think, shh. I think they'll be helpful. It's a little bit redundant. We're talking about labeling others and the, the limitations that come inside of doing so. And we've had that conversation again and again. But as Debbie and I were saying the other day, that's a conversation we'll have again and again because it plagues our society. But before we get deep into the mix on that, let me just say to you, the number one thing that Debbie and I and the team and others involved in putting on this thing, we want you to walk in and out of this room with is the constant and consistent reminder that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. There are 10,025 different labels that get put on your head, and so it is our responsibility to remind you that your truth, your core, what rests at the bottom of all things you, is that you are beloved. You are a child of God. You are the one in which God is well pleased. But let's talk about those labels too. Let me start with the story real quick. Um, it came to mind this morning. I, I can't remember if I shared it before, but I'll share it again in case I had. Um, I have an older brother. His name is Aaron David Moberg. He is salt of the earth. And I, I mean that. Like he's everything aspirationally I want to be about. Firstborn. Rule follower. He has yet to commit a sin that I'm aware of at least. I tried many decades of my life to convince him into doing so. have yet to actually make progress on that end. He's just the perfect guy. And I say that to set up the story that I'm going to tell you that will provide a little bit of cringe to that. When we were in sixth grade... Aaron and I, we grew up in um, an evangelical Baptist church, loved the people there, loved the context we grew up in, have no gripes or shade to cast upon it. But in that service, there was very clear, there are those who are found, there are those who are lost, there are those who are saved, there are those who, uh-oh, maybe some cause for concern. For me, by and large, I tended to blow it off. I didn't really think much of it, but Aaron certainly did. And so in the pew next to me was Aaron, and next to him was um, his best friend and our best friend today, Kent Boostrom. They sat there together and thought, okay, man, so if, if we are the found and there are those among us who are the lost, then we ought to make sure that the lost are then found. One of the people that came to mind for them was one of our good friends today, Andy Edwards. This is funny. I'm not trying to start dark, okay? So just chill out, okay? Andy Edwards did not grow up in a religious environment. We called him Ace. I'll probably call him Ace for the duration of this sermon. At some point in the sixth grade year, Aaron's seventh grade year, they heard a sermon from the front of that church that, de that described those who were lost and those who were found. They decided that Ace, Andy Edwards, who did not grow up in a religious context, we ought to do our part to ensure that that boy who was lost is now going to be found. And so they invited him over for a sleepover. 
Now, Andy is like already one of their best friends. And, um, but they felt like, you know, this is important. The pressure has been applied upon us. How dare us not respond to that moment right there. So they bring him over for sleep over there, about to press play on the VHS and fire up some Happy Gilmore. But before they do, they have this intervention mapped out. <laughs> so Aaron, Aaron says, hey, Andy, there's this really cool song I would love for you to hear. <laughs> Kent, pre-program, pre-strategize, pre-intervention plan, says in response, <laughs> yeah, Andy, this song has been blowing me away. <laughs> it's like, I'm not kidding you when I say there's a script involved in this moment right here. <laughs> Aunt Ken says, yeah, man, this song has been blowing me away. Come sit down right next to me. Aaron presses play on the, the tape recorder, CD-ROM, and presses to track 14, first decade, Michael W. Smith. Aaron sits on one side, Ace is in the middle, Kent's over here, and they're like, you've got to hear this song. And the friends are friends forever, <laughs> if the Lord's a Lord of them, and if... I really expected everyone to join in with me there in that moment. Say never, if the welcome will not. It's such a good song. I mean, melodically alone, the song is grade A material. They play this song for Andy. They sit in this room. Okay, so I don't know why I'm dying. I just talked to Andy about this about a year ago, and it still is funny to me. Aaron's over here. Kent's over here. They look at Andy, and they go, like, did you love it too, man? <laughs> Now, you think I've already provided you with like the comedic gold in this story. I have not done so. Because what's amazing is I think in their heads they, they assume that the intervention would be sufficient. If we did this, if we gave him a little bit of Schmitty, he'd be like wanting to ask, how do I make space in my heart for Jesus to, to enter in? That didn't exactly happen. Ace was like, yeah, I, I could see how you'd like that song. They didn't have a plan for what to do next. <laughs> so they looked at each other and go like, should we watch Happy Gilmore? <laughs> it is like the funniest story to me. But I will, I'll never forget that story because it always makes me laugh. Except when you think back on it a little bit. Because when you actually do a deeper dive in what is involved, it goes a little best from like, com like comedic gold to some well-justified cringe. Because if you run the tape back, what had happened was the oldest brother of mine, Aaron David Moberg, who I love more than I love any of you. And I don't, you know, I love you guys. But Aaron is like pedestal in my mind. He sat in a pew. He absorbed a sermon. The sermon told him that there are people who are lost. They put a label on the lost. They said that you are among those who are found. They instilled in him without saying that there's a superiority with you derived from the separation from them. And now it's on you. There's a responsibility that's been implied upon you to go and do something about those around you who are lost. Go and fix that label. Go and fix that problem. This is a group of people, wildly diverse people, who have all been summed up in the word lost. What's your part in pursuing their solution? It's interesting, you know, this past week I was thinking about that story and I was thinking about the Minton text, which we're going to go into tonight, but about the idea of labeling others. 
Now, Minton's whole book is about it. It's not you, it's everything, right? To say, like, in these paranoid times, in these chaotic moments, in the moments where we've had social upheavals, personal upheavals, we're asking all kinds of questions. There's no kinds of answers. We're, we're trying to figure out how do we cope with reality as it is. One of the means through which we do so is we label things. Honestly, like it, it, I know there's a very like strong, severe negativity attached to labels, and we're definitely going to get into it. But there's also like, in order for me to get out of bed the next day, I need to simplify the chaos around me. I need to say that this is good, this is bad. This is for me, this is not. But when it goes too far, it moves from this place of how do I continue to get out of bed and live and into this place where why do I continue to submit myself to death? It struck me earlier this week when I was thinking about this chapter and I was thinking about the conversation we were having and I remembered, I know I bring up the story all the time because I think it's the best parable in all of scriptures, the story of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This is one of those stories where the rabbis, they talk about how the scripture is like a diamond. You, you turn it in the light and it refracts different things all the time. It's always speaking a new thing. It's always providing some kind of nutritional benefit. And for me, this past week it did so. In the story, God says, you are placed in a garden, Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, so the story goes. In this garden, there's all kinds of trees, all kinds of trees with nutritional benefit, all kinds of trees with medicinal value, but there's one tree you should not touch. There's one tree that God, instead of like hiding in the waterfall, like far, far away, or the dark shadows of a corner somewhere out of reach, he, God places in the middle of the garden. Do you remember what that tree is called? Anybody, show of hands. Knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, John, I'll tell you, for me, for most of my life, when I thought about that tree, it's good and evil. It's the tree from which we'd understand what is right, what is wrong, what is ours, what is theirs. Where are us? Where are them? This is where I want to stake my claim. But the tree is named the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And when I read that text this past week, as I considered that story and the conversation we're having tonight, that shook me a little bit. It jumped out. The refracted diamond brought a brand new light because it's the knowledge. It's the binary awareness that there is a right and a wrong, a good and an evil, an us and a them, an either and an or. Uh, those guys do that, but we do this. Labels are thus acceptable. That's not the truth. I understand why Adam and Eve succumb to the temptation of the tree to eat from that fruit because it's much easier to go through life being able to grab that tree and say, yeah, yeah, they belong there, I belong here, this is good, this is bad, there's no gray permitted in between, but that's not the truth. And every time we sink our teeth into the cotton candy of that tree, we find out that it is temporal. We find out that it is not life-inducing, but it's actually death encroaching. It doesn't bring life when we, per when we participate in the life of labels, when we consist uh, continue to both label ourselves and label other people. Aaron, Moberg, salt of the earth. We are the found, they are the lost. How do we fix this problem? Well, hold on, that was your friend. Ace, Andy Edwards, that, that's your guy right there. There's a whole world of complexity behind that right there. He's not strictly the lost, he's also a life. If you eat from this tree, you will grow in awareness, the knowledge of good and evil.
and it will kill you, God said. A lot of times, a lot of evangelicals in particular will say that that's a warning against us to say that God will kill you. That's not what the text says. The text says that you will actually be succumbing to your own suicidal temptation. You, you will give in to this inclination in which you will say, this is the best way for me, despite the fact that every day you are finding out new ways in which you are biting your own head. You are taking out your own life. You are making small that which is incredibly big. I went to Google this past week, and one of the things that amazes me about the ways in which, and I know when we consider on a big picture, if we go macro level with it, the partisan divides, the ways that we bicker and banter when we say they are of them and this is of us and they are like that and we are like this. One of the things that amazes me is that all of how wildly inaccurate all of this actually is. <laughs> when you think about how complex human beings, here's what I found out from Google this past week. Consider, if you will, the complexities of your human body, not my words, but the article I copied. This form that has evolved from stardust ever since it explosively sprung into existence around 13.7 billion years ago and since life first emerged on Earth at least 3.5 billion years ago. Catch this. In your body, there are about 200 different types of cells and over 37 trillion cells in total. The human brain is the most complex and connected system in the known universe. Estimates vary, but it is reckoned that there are approximately 86 billion 86 billion neurons in the human brain, in your brain, between your ears. This size compares to the latest estimates for the number of stars in the Milky Way of somewhere between 200 and 400 billion. In turn, each neuron in the brain may be connected up to 10,000 other neurons passing signals to each other via as many as 100 trillion synaptic connections. And this is not even touching on the emotional, psychological, interior landscape within you. This is just science getting an inside glimpse at who you are and saying, wow, there's nothing else on the planet Earth like this. These wildly complex and yet somehow connected systems all embodied and encapsulated in this human form. And yet you want to say that that person's a liberal? You want to say that that person's just a bigot? That person's fundamentalist, conservative, Ah, he's arrogant, man. I don't want anything to do with him. That's not the whole truth. One of the gifts I think that this Minton, uh, Minton book has provided with me is recognizing the different things inside of our own Christian tradition that we've grown up being conditioned to be allergic to. In particular is the idea of complexities. In particular is the idea of that people are not limited by labels, but they actually carry with them many layers. When you get to the thing behind the thing, you realize, wait, I thought you were a bigot, but now I recognize that you cry at the same things I cry at. I thought you were this, but now I see that you're not, that doesn't, that doesn't tell the whole story of who you are. Minton writes this in his book. He says this, my tradition may have instilled in me a love for the biblical text, faithfully serving my community. The nuances of St. Paul's missionary journeys through Asia Minor and the Welch's grape juice flowing through the veins of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we took communion four times a year. But it never taught me how to be okay with my own and the world's profound inconsistencies. It never helped me become a person because people are complicated. And our complexity was always discouraged as a detriment to our faith and our witness to the world. 
My inherited evangelical tradition showed me how to label, how to organize, and how to categorize all of life, both my own and others, as a sacred duty. This is good, they are bad. This is wrong, it's secular. But this, well, this is Christian. I was taught to take a word that became flesh and blood, bone and sinew, Jewish and crucified, and turn it back into more words, a brand a label, an algorithm underneath which we must all be sorted eternally. There's this podcaster that I've come on to lately. His name is Dylan Marin, and he's this digital creator. Show of hands, anybody heard of this man right here? Brilliant guy. He's created many innovative cutting-edge series. He, he first kind of burst onto the scene where he started to have the... He, he would take these popular films, like the Rotten Tomatoes 99%. What is everyone talking about? What's the talk of the town? And he would edit them down to just the parts spoken by people of color. And then he would play it, and it'd be like seven seconds long. And he'd go, talk to me more about representation in Hollywood. How is that actually looking? Like, I know you think because you have a black actor on scene that you're actually but let's see how it actually plays out. He started there. Then when transphobic bills were being passed around the land and became the main conversation at many dinner tables across the country, he then decided to say, like, I'm going to sit in bathrooms with trans people, and we're going to talk about what this actually means on a human-to-human -human level. Now, as he did these things with the different podcast series and the conversations that were had, he started to grow in fame, and he eventually kind of blew up. Like, everybody knew who he was. He's the talk of the town. He brought in many different followers, and along with that came many different haters. Over time, as a gay man, he was receiving nightly death threats, rape threats, words that, like, I don't feel comfortable sharing in a Sunday service. Every night he would have these, and he thought, what do I do with these? I have this hate file stored up of all these people who want me dead, who think the worst of me. All these people who, in return, I'm thinking the smallest of them. What do I do with this? And he came out with this different series where he would go message by message, and he started critiquing it for comedic value. He would go into, you know, the absent apostrophes in their, in their um, death threats and the misspelled words and, like, the accidental, like, what do you even mean, man? <laughs> all these different things. But eventually, all these labels he was finding comedic value inside of, they grew complex when he saw the la layers behind them. I want you to watch this video. And now we get to... Okay, you're a moron, you're, but no apostrophe, you're the reason the country is dividing itself. I am very powerful. Um, all your videos are merely, merely opinion, and an awful opinion, I must say, just stop, plus being gay, capital G, is a sin. Um, so it's easy to develop, um, a strong distaste for these people who uh, tell me to kill myself and tell me I'm a gay wad fag, ga ga ga, or that I have a stupid haircut. Um, but then let's get to know a little more because he forgets that this is on Facebook, a medium where then you can click a few clicks and get to know everything about their life. Um, posted a few moments before I got this message. Yes, sorry, tagged his cousins. I'll give y'all 1,000 each though. Would you slap your cousin for a million dollars? Okay, um, 
anti-Hillary, we get it, you're hardcore, is that confetti, or 30,000 shredded emails? All right, baby girl, let's just keep going. See the difference, we got MLK, and then we got protesters, he's getting his news from Fox News, we can, we, we get, okay, do not be deceived, neither homosexuals nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, you're gonna share a meme that was actually a very bad screenshot job, and that person has 20% battery. But, okay, we're, we're gonna try and get to know this person. And then, final story, what a tearjerker, loved it! And then you go and he says, anyone want to talk? I'm bored. Um, okay, I would like to talk and have a dialogue, but you scare me. Um, new haircut, what do y'all think? And honestly, I think it's a great haircut. I think it's very sweet. Celebratory lunch made by me and then he posted a picture of the lunch made by him for himself. He's celebrating, what is he celebrating? I think he was cast in his high school musical. Anyone willing to buy an ad in my school's musical program, it can be a personal one to me or for your business options, go his high school. And then there's the offer. And then he says, anyone wanna hang tonight? Don't wanna spend my Friday night sitting on my bed watching TV. And then, on August 6th, he wrote, feeling alone. So this complicates the notion of trolling. After he put up that video, the young man who he was talking about named Josh, he was completely veiled throughout the story. The beliefs came over his name, all things anonymous. He got a message from him saying, um, I would like to talk more. That led to a whole new series that he started up saying, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, where he engaged with all the people who sent him these death threats, rape threats, ugly words that I cannot say on a Sunday service. And he says in the conversation with Josh, when he had it with him, something happened in between the words that were spoken. In his book, by the same name, he writes, Instead of using our key keyboards, here on the phone, we're using our voices, and because of this, I hear his every pause, which tells me more than the anxiety-inducing typing bubbles, bubbles ever did. I sense when he's nervous and when he's confident, his southern accent transports me to his hometown, his elongated vowels and immediate flight to his region, his cadence, slow and deliberate, is distinctly his own and exists in stark contrast to my more hurried and nervous speech pattern. His words recline while mine scamper. Now we catch each other's ums and uhs and stutters, which had previously been concealed by a simple stroke of the backspace key. Best of all, we are no longer caught up in the jungled queue of misaligned questions and answers. Now we are finding a rhythm together. You know, if you study the life of Jesus, that's a fair way you could surmise the work that he did. He entered into a world of noise, chaos, and he said, here's a new way through which you can find your rhythm together. He entered into a world of noise and chaos and said, here's a song that I would like for you to sing. 
Eventually, it manifests in our, in our scriptures itself where Paul, the one who had been vehemently against this new branch of Judaism called the way, says, I'm going to kill all these people. Eventually, he has this moment where he encounters the risen Christ so far that he says, you know what Jesus is all about? You know who Jesus actually is if you were to break it down for? Jesus is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Dividing wall of hostility, it was a a wall in the temple. It separated the Jew from the Gentile. It was also, though, by mandate, by implication, what the written law did. You, You gained your superiority from your sense of separation. You were this, they were that. It was black, it was white. Jesus says, no more. Christ came not to respect any walls that have been erected by human hands. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no more labels. There is no more male, no more female. For all of us, we are one in Christ Jesus. We talk about this all the time. We think about this all the time. We look at the life of Jesus and we see how he sat and ate with people that you weren't supposed to sit and eat with. How he called in all those who were cast out. How he went again and again beyond the boundaries permitted by human society and the systems of the day. To say that these are all pathetic and dumb. People are far too big far too complex, far too beautiful to be kept captive inside of a cage like a one word to make you lazy and keep you from learning who they actually are. It has to start with us in this community. Outside of abstract Christian pep talks in this community, we will not cartoonize, make caricatures out of people that we do not know. We will not surmise an entire life story in saying they are this and we are that. We will not make big and beautiful people into these one small things. It's not true. And it's not consistent with the life of Christ. The walls of hostility that we have erected with human hands and prejudice and everything in between, they have to come down. If they don't come down, we're not doing the work of Jesus. We might say we're the body of Christ, but nothing in our work reflects the actions of Christ. For we are one. Let me close with this. I um, was at a wedding a couple weeks ago, something like that. And we, Lauren and I, we showed up at the wedding. It was at a golf course. And... Um, Turns out it wasn't, the wedding wasn't actually happening at like the clubhouse or in that area. It was happening a moment away. Like, I don't know. What was it, Lauren? Driving range? Is that what the moment away was? Doesn't matter at all, actually. Um, (laughs) But you had to take a golf cart tour. We show up. We're one of the last on the scene. And when I look who else was waiting for a golf cart, I find that it's two people who were back at CPC who were vehemently and proactively against the table ever being planted as a plant. The table ever happening. This idea of an inclusive, expansive community, they wanted to shut down immediately. And so when I see them, I have all of this like old built up like anxiety. Um, Lauren, y'all don't know, like that's who that is right there. They're just this, they're just that. And once you know that amidst the long line of people who are waiting for the golf court, the last golf cart that that gives four seats to people, it's to me and Lauren 
and those two people and we start catching up. We're no longer debating about the merits of whether or not to plant this church. We're actually just looking at each other human to human. And I tell you this, it was a really good night. It was a really good night. The invitation of Paul, the invitation extended from the heart of Christ to, to, to completely explode these walls of hostility is not to go up to different people and say, look, I'm no different from you. The invitation is to go up to people and say, I'm different like you. We're all complicated. We're all complex. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, thank you, God, for the space that we have tonight to consider some of the words that you gave us, consider some of the ways that your spirit has led us. Oh, this is not hard. It's not easy being <laughs> human right now, God. Especially in a polarized world where, we, world where we are taught to walk around with bald fists, God, and easy dismissals of others that we do not know. God, help us to be more patient, mature in our thought. Help us to resist the temptation of the tree in the middle that so easily categorizes those who are right and those who are wrong, those who are of us and those who are of them. God, you made us all one. Give us the courage to stop building these walls of hostility when you have called us each to tear them down. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Matt started out by saying that um, he and I were having a conversation about how we often talk about this here. But that we always need the reminder. And I know that I do. I'm mad I hadn't heard that story about um, you connecting with, because there were um, people at Christ Presbyterian Church when we left that um, uh, made it difficult. And it, and it was painful. But the reminder that so many conversations that we've had since then have been conversations that have started at, you know, looking at each other and seeing the image of God in each other. The reminder that all of us need all the time, every day, that we are people that are called to see God and everyone, to see the humanity in everyone, and that sometimes that's really, really difficult. You know, I was thinking when you were talking, Matt, about... Um, when Jesus was questioned about what is the greatest commandment. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we ask that question, like, who's our neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. Because every human being is created in the image of God. And there's no room for labels in that. There's no room to not see the humanity in each and every person. To not treat each other with dignity. To not move toward knowing one another. And the God who said that is the God that we follow. The God that we remember when we take part in communion together. One of our rhythms as we gather for worship. On the night before Jesus died, he was in a room with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood and it's shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And this cup and this bread is for everybody. 
that, then we need the reminder over and over again about not labeling people and about seeing people and knowing people and loving people. And again, I need that reminder each and every day. During the music, we'll invite you to come up. We're doing communion now up front. We'll have the bread. You can take that bread. Someone else will have the cup, and you can dip it into the cup. If you're not comfortable with that yet, we will have. There's a basket of the um, little cups with the wafer, and you can take one of those and receive the words, and you can take that back and take that in the pew too. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom.